Today's episode of Podcast for America is sponsored by the American Heart Association, which is urging lawmakers to save physical education. The average school gets just $764 a year for phys ed. Go to heart.org slash let them play to learn more and take action. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello from the Slate Studios in Washington, D.C. This is Podcast for America, a show from Panoply about the profiles in courage and self-delusion that is a presidential campaign cycle. I'm Mark Leibovich of the New York Times Magazine, and with me, as always, is Annie Lowry, contributing editor to New York Magazine. Alex Wagner is away this week, but she wanted us to tell you that she is thinking of all of you, wherever she is. So this week, first up, we will talk about the big fight, this matchup stakes, the candidates for the presidential nomination, Republican side, versus the Republican National Committee. This past weekend, 11 campaign advisors met up in the D.C. area to figure out how to fight back about what they perceive to be unfair treatment by the networks, by the moderators. We will talk about what it could mean for our presidential campaign and democracy and the media and freedom and all the things that we hold dear. Next, we'll slide over to the world of commercials. Bernie Sanders announced this week that his campaign will roll out their first round of ads. And meanwhile, Senator Ted Cruz cannot legally get the attention of his super PACs to start cranking out commercials on his behalf. We're going to talk about ads, PACs, and everything in between. And joining us in this edition of Podcast for America will be Josh Ernest. You may know him as the White House press secretary, but we also know him as a very enthusiastic baseball fan. Big fan of the Kansas City Royals, who as of Sunday night are baseball's world champions for the first time in 30 years. All this in a lovely segment we call If I Were in Charge, because the nation and the world can truly benefit from a little more Podcast for America dictatorship. So let's get started. This weekend, the feathers of 11 campaign advisors were rustled up. The advisors decided to meet up just up the street from where we are here in the suburbs of Washington, D.C., to vent and to brainstorm. RNC Chairman Reince Priebus didn't attend these meetings but just before they began, he made an announcement about a staff shakeup within the GOP. Annie, so we have what seems like, I wouldn't say it's a rebellion because, you know, it, don't, it doesn't seem like they're really bringing pitchforks and want to overhaul what it means to run a presidential debate. But we have a fairly unprecedented moment here where the candidates are banding together. They are trying to take over the debate process from the RNC. And it seems to me has very effectively left the... Republican National Committee out in the cold. What do you make of all this? On the one hand, these debates have been pretty terrible. I mean, there's just been tons and tons of candidates on stage. They've been kind of chaotic. Mm -hmm. They've been, at some points, deliciously unserious and at some points really, really frustrating. I think that the candidates who are complaining about a lack of airtime probably have a point. On the other hand, I think that a lot of this seems cynical to me. They're going to complain about the debates because they think that bashing the media is an easy thing to do. And also kind of sticking their middle fingers up at the RNC is an easy thing to do, right? Like, Is it? It's, it's To me, there's always been that level of deference, at least... For some of these people, for like your your average Donald Trump, what does he care? He doesn't care. He does not care at all. It's very for him. Whereas, you know, obviously a a Jeb Bush or whatever is is, is going to take a a much more tactful tack. Tactful tack. Yeah. So let's go with tactful tack. So what do you think of this? I think it is 
Well, I wouldn't say it's much ado about nothing because I think the contours. It's much ado about a teensy bit. No, well, it would be a bigger deal if they were actually asking to overhaul these things. Right. They are saying, we all want opening statements. I mean, yeah. that doesn't make the world a better place. I don't want to hear these people's <laughs> opening statements. I don't know why they all care about yeah. this. I mean, if they all get them and so forth. It sounds like they want a bigger hand in picking the moderators. Yep. Does that mean that they will not ask John Harwood and the you know his friends at CNBC to moderate another debate, maybe? Or does it mean, you know, we only want you know, someone from Breitbart, Newsmax, and, you know, freebeacon.com yeah, to ask Yeah, the blaze. The blaze, exactly. Uh-huh. I don't quite know why it benefits the candidates, because if you're a good debater and you can think on your feet, you can actually handle a shit show. I don't know how much... Anyone was particularly hurt except for maybe Jeb Bush by the CNBC debate. Sure. But I don't really know who wins here. I mean, look, it might be just sort of like a way for them to assert some control. But Mike, it's kind of a sideshow, right? Like, Well, it's a process sideshow. It's a process sideshow that your average American probably doesn't really care about this. No, they don't. Yeah. No, no. Well, let me ask you this, though. Yeah. Well, let's play an early round of if I were in charge, starring okay. Annie Lowry. Let's do it. Okay. If Annie Lowry were in charge, yes. what would Annie do? It's funny. These are already kind of like a weird public-private process with strange vetting. I think you could see a world in which there's maybe some argument that you just want to do this on C-SPAN and severely let the, limit the number of candidates. But I just don't think it's an easy thing to actually structure. That's true. You know, maybe like it's an open source software kind of thing (laughs) where you just sort of throw them out there and put a bunch of boom mics around and um, throw topics out. Yeah. Um, Maybe like throw things. I don't know. I mean, just let them think on their feet. I mean, I, I always find that. The moments immediately before and after these C-SPAN televised right. like, interviews or events are always the most telling because they keep a mic open or they keep yeah. a boom mic over over things. And so, I don't know. I mean, have them ask their own questions. Have them uh-huh. ask things of each other. I mean, I don't know if that's – is that a pure Lincoln-Douglas thing? No, because there would be like 15 people on the stage. Yeah. But – It would be a lot more revealing. Yeah. Yeah. And I also, I mean, I think that there is like the kernel of an actually interesting and probably correct argument that they have that the mainstream media tilts to the left, right? Like, I just don't Mm -hmm. think that they're wrong about that. I agree. You get people very riled up when they say, no, we're terribly objective. We have no opinions at all. And, And many journalists do. But they're not wrong about that. And that's why I think it's actually kind of an interesting issue for them to push. But the internecine stuff between the RNC Good and the use candidates. Of always yeah. one of my favorite always words. looking for mm-hmm. an opening there is the most interesting part about this, I think. Right. Wait, say it again. They, the internecine stuff, like not even between the Republicans and the networks, but mm-hmm. between the Republicans and the RNC, right? Yeah, absolutely. So, how much do you think that the candidates actually forced these changes? And I don't know. I mean, first know? of all, it's unclear whether they're going to get any of these changes. I mean, right. I guess ultimately it does sort of rest with the networks. And I mean, I would see the other part of this is if you're a network, do you just say, well, fuck you, we're going to do it our own way. And, you know, I think that would be a great thing. Then we'll see, like, who is really going to bluff and who's not. I mean, I can see the only person who has any real leverage here might be Trump because (laughs) he does seem to drive ratings. Yeah. And he could just decide to stay home and... You know, the thing might tank. But I don't know. I mean, that, right. that then it becomes kind of a game of chicken. And it's a catch-22 for him because, like, there's no actual benefit to Trump to not being on the air. 
That is true. I mean, also I, just because he loves it. He loves it and he thrives there. I mean, he, he feels so he ha- sad just sitting in his bathtub watching the others. Well, I would feel know? sad sitting like in my bathtub <laughs> watching a debate that didn't have Donald Trump. To be perfectly honest with you, not to, to be cre- I would feel less bad sitting in Donald Trump's bathroom. I bet it's really nice. Well, you tub. know, it's interesting because w- I don't know if <laughs> listeners know this, but we actually are broadcasting live from a bubble bath um, <laughs> this week. We don't as we, we don't, do we, every as week. we do every week. We don't. We try not to talk about it because yeah. we, we have. F- CC. Actually, we don't. But there I, were a lot of Donald Trump costumes. Yeah, there were. This year. My nephew. That was very overdone. Here, almond joy. What do you think of almond Ooh, joy? That's thank one you. pocket. Are you recovering from your weekend sugar high? What did you go dressed as? I didn't really go dressed as anything. I have a new jacket that kind Ooh. of evokes baseball. I bought yeah. it at H and M because I went to New York and I didn't have a jacket, so I bought it for like sixty dollars. So That's people thought I was a baseball player. I wore it a toupee. Oh. I always have a toupee that I wear on Halloween because I wore it to a costume party a few years ago, <laughs> along with a gold chain. It was actually an American <laughs> hustle party. I have a lot of candy in my jacket pocket. Why won't Fox question the candidates about almond joys and their favorite? Because Halloween then candies? they would they would then you know, wild... because they're on the side of them because they won't ask the tough questions. No, they would be they would be they would come under criticism. Why are we being, you know, asked these trivial questions? But in fact, I would want to know the answer. But so maybe I'm part of the problem. So before we go on from this topic, I want to ask you sort of a question, maybe more rabbinical question about the Republican and Democratic National Committee. Yeah. Is there a level of coziness between them and network television? I mean, what is even their function at this point? Why do they exist? I mean, do they just exist as sort of organizational groups? I mean, do we, do you think that this is actually part of a redefinition of like what the DNC and what the RNC do? Because, I mean, I don't think this is, these are entities that most people really care about. The question is obviously less pressing for the DNC than the RNC. And I think it's a, it's a good question as to what the RNC's role is this, because eventually they're going to whittle it down to one or two candidates, and that candidate is necessarily going to work pretty closely with the RNC going forward. But it's obviously become less powerful of an institution. Ben Smith wrote something good about how these campaigns are fundamentally media organizations themselves. Oh, absolutely. I thought that was like really, it's a good point. It was really smart. It's a smart way of sort of paradigmatically thinking of it. Um, Wait, what, what was that long word? Paradigmatically, <laughs> I'm bringing out all my ten dollar no, words great. today. Great, these are awesome words. Yeah, paradigmatically, paradigmatically. So it's like of or pertaining to yeah. a paradigm. Yeah, they're they're they they are little publications themselves, and you know I think that a lot of the work that the RNC used to do, they don't do anymore. Nobody listens to them, and you know. Listeners, what do you think of this debate uproar? Do you have suggestions on how to fix the problems? Tweet us your thoughts at Pod for America. That's at the at sign Pod for America. Moving on, as we creep ever closer to the primary vote in those early primary states, advertising season is heating up. Over the weekend, the Bernie Sanders campaign announced they'd begin with $2 million worth of ads in Iowa. That's the same amount of money that the Clinton campaign spent to initiate their own ad campaign. Meanwhile, Ted Cruz has not yet begun to roll out any ads in the early primary states. Annie. Let's talk philosophy of ads here for a second. Ads can certainly be tedious. Um, I don't know of a lot of people who just love to sort of sit at home waiting for the next political ad to come on. But they're clearly very important to the primary process. Or at least campaigns still believe that they are important. What do you think? I mean, are we actually in this era of so much media, so much stimuli, is it just that much harder to break through that this is no longer a useful exercise, just a way to waste money and line the pockets of 
ad people and consultants and what have you. So I think it's kind of interesting. I do think that there is something to the fact that there's like vastly more avenues to reach people and campaigns are trying to work on all of them. So they're putting up like Snapchats and like putting up Instagram posts. And my favorite, my favorite social media to look at of the campaigns is a lot of them have Pinterest pages. So like Dr. Ben Carson has a Pinterest page where if you go look, at least as of a couple days ago, there's a bunch of pictures of like people with Ben Carson pumpkins for Halloween. And it's just like, who is actually going to be convinced to vote by like a Ben Carson pumpkin, but nevertheless, they do it. So yeah, I mean, I think it's actually the same thing as it is with business advertising, where they know in aggregate that these things work, but like down to the level of the actual individual ad, it's pretty clear that like nobody pays attention and nobody knows exactly how much these things are worth. And they're probably paying vastly too much for them. I think for the Republicans, going back to what we were talking about before, it's just hard because there's so many of them. So now there's a sweet spot when it comes to advertising. 60 ads per week is it. If you go above 60, you risk turning voters against your candidate. You reach a backlash point. Is Are we going to have the same sort of drowning feeling, you know, when it comes to once these ads all get up and running? Or will it be so diversified that we have a little Pinterest page here and a Twitter ad here and a Facebook ad here? So that we're going to be – these flavors of inundation will be so multimedia we won't even notice. It will be just like kind of like a massage. Yeah, so we're like – we aren't even close to the half of it yet, right? Right, not like, even close. And what's funny is that, you know, I don't really watch broadcast television, which remains one of the main ways ways that voters see these ads. And I certainly don't watch it in the states of like Iowa and New Hampshire very right. often, right? Like these markets are localized. Right. If you are somebody who watches like regular television with a satellite like NBC and CBS in Iowa, you can't get away from this crap. You've seen a pretty dramatic shift already in where the campaigns are spending their dollars and a better effort to reach people. But yeah. I think that there's still – it's just like so uncertain, right? Like they just take this money and – Oh, like, it's so uncertain. Like it's throw the West. campaign – like throw the spaghetti against the wall and totally. some of it sticks. I was, there's huge potential downside, not just upside, right? Like, oh, it makes me sad. Yeah. That's a downside. I get to be sad. <laughs> no, I mean I do think that one of the reasons – I mean this is – you know, I, I don't think I'm the first to say this, but I think one reason that Donald Trump has actually been refreshing to some people is because he's actually not running ads. He's not. No. Um, he's not spending it. I mean, he he's is not, his own advertisement, quite literally. Yeah, he's not pandering no. to the people. I mean, and and look, I mean, I would love to see some kind of market analysis about what he, through his Twitter feed, has been able to like what sort of monetary value he has been able to reap by way of. Just a savvy use of a huge, huge Twitter feed huge. that he has used to great effect in this campaign, don't you yeah. think? I mean, I think, I think so. Yeah. Although I think that journalists are much more interested in the Twitter feed than like average Americans. It, it gets journalists his message are out. way overrepresented on Twitter. I agree with that. Yeah, and then they take the tweets and then they like broadcast them out yes. elsewhere onto like Facebook or whatever. Agree with you. Twitter yes. itself, I think, is kind of like a little bit of just an echo chamber. Oh, it's a huge echo chamber. That's yeah, no, it theme. is. Twitter, Twitter is a dumpster fire of a social media network. It is, but you learn things too. Do sure, you? and uh, also, I mean, Donald Trump is like brilliant at it. He is good at it. He's amazing. He's like the world's greatest troll on it. And it's just, it is, it's, it is, yeah, it's, it's, it more is the than best just... platform for his performance but art. But I don't know why every candidate doesn't do what he does. I mean, how hard could it be? Just like be. Because some of them want to be credible. I mean, he just doesn't care, right? He's credible. He's like, some of them want to be ahead of the polls, like to yeah. the degree to which he is. I mean, you know, his message gets picked up. I mean, yeah. 
I mean, you think like if Bobby Jindal didn't like go off the rails on Twitter, like yeah. the, the echo chamber wouldn't pay attention immediately and he would have yeah. like Paul um, Riot very restrained on Twitter. Oh, they all are to some degree, right? <laughs> yeah, they are, except huh. for Donald Trump. Ah, let this be a lesson to you people. It's good to be a billionaire. Um, <laughs> I've been saying that all along. So, all this talk about advertising has, I can't speak for everyone else, but it's made me very hungry to hear an advertisement from one of our great sponsors here on Podcast for America. Annie, take it away. We all remember taking physical education classes back when we were in school. Whether you loved playing with parachutes or preferred kickball, Phys Ed was a great way for kids to get regular physical activity, which is associated with a healthier, longer life and a lower risk of heart disease, high blood pressure, diabetes, and obesity. Physically fit children also perform better academically, exhibit better classroom behavior, and have higher attendance rates. That's why the American Heart Association is urging Congress to save Phys Ed. As lawmakers work to finalize the Elementary and Secondary Education Act, Strong physical education policy should be a top priority, but some lawmakers want to do away with physical education altogether. Learn more and take action at heart.org slash let them play. Okay, we want to welcome to the show a dear friend of Podcast for America because he has agreed to come on Podcast for America. That is Joshua Ernest, who is the White House Press Secretary for President Obama, and more to the point, a big fan of the world champion Kansas City Royals. It sounds pretty good, doesn't it, Josh? It sounds great. And I have to admit that even as recently as uh, three or four years ago, I never thought I'd hear those words. It's pretty amazing. I mean, they were like a, a small market team that just seemed, I mean, they, they've had a real run of like haplessness. The 21st century has not been a good century for the Kansas City Royals until uh, just the last couple of years. So let me ask you this. So you are a native of Kansas City itself? Yeah, that's right. I was born and raised in Kansas City, Missouri. Okay. And your heyday as a you know youthful baseball fan was <laughs> sort of it coincided with the last World Series championship won by the Kansas City Royals, which was in 1985. So is that right? That's right. Okay, That's right. So I'm going to date myself. I was uh, I was 10 years old when the Royals last won the World Series. Wow. I often say that it was it, that it's the best possible age to be when your team wins the World Series. I was I was actually thinking today that I still have a pretty clear memory of the day after the the Royals won the World Series. Unlike last night, they they actually clinched at home in 1985. Mm. They had the World Series parade in Kansas City the very next day. So my parents got me out of school. Mm-hmm. And we went to downtown Kansas City, where my uh, grandmother worked downtown at the time. Mm-hmm. And we went to the uh, roof of the building uh, in downtown Kansas City and watched the what was then a ticker tape parade go by. So now the president, one of the things I have actually always admired about the president is he does not opt out of those sort of, you know, who are you rooting for in the Super Bowl, the World Series kind of questions. He actually does admit to a rooting interest. Did he, because of you, have any kind of um, partisan interest in this World Series that he voiced? Uh, he did not voice one. I know that after after the Cubs won the wild card game, mm-hmm. that he committed what what many people probably in Chicago think is probably a cardinal sin. But he showed his you know regional loyalty to the city of Chicago by saying that he was going to cast his lot with the Cubs in hmm. the playoffs. Interesting. So he didn't do the enemy is, of my enemy is my friend thing. <laughs> exactly. Okay. Exactly. So now you have been his press secretary, the White House press secretary, for how long? About a year, year and a half now? Uh, yeah, a, a, almost a year and a half. You, in that time, have um, welcomed your first child, correct? Mm, that's that's you're, correct. You're a father for the first time. He was time. born just a, just, just a few months after I got the job. Just a few months after you got the job. The Kansas City Royals won the World Series last night. Rate 
in the matter of honor, importance, and joy, those three events for Josh Ernest? <laughs> <laughs> Good question, huh? Yeah, I was going to say, that in some ways, I'm almost wondering if it's a trick question. But it's not. The, yeah. um, obviously, the birth of my child is something that, that has changed the way that I look at life in a very fundamental way. I think that's a common experience of new fathers and certainly one that, yes. uh, that I have been through. I would say the press secretary job is second. Okay. Uh, and in some ways, that was the culmination of a lot of sweat equity that I had invested. And you know, the, obviously, I was less personally invested in the uh, in the Royals' tremendous success, but I uh, observed closely over the last several years, including in some of the lean years. And so it's satisfying in a different way. It's, a, it's I'm sort of one step removed from their success, but it hasn't stopped people all day from coming up to me and offering congratulations. <laughs> yeah. I don't know many people who don't like the Kansas City Royals. I mean, how can you not root for I mean, even Annie, who's not that big a baseball fan, despite her, you know, jumping up and down in here, like, just dying to get into the baseball question. Yeah. Um, we'll, we'll maybe ask one political question. Paul Ryan is speaker now, and he said that the president can't be trusted on immigration, which seems like it was probably a political statement as much as it was... A statement about policy. So, yeah. how do you how do you feel about the guy, and and do you think that this is going to be a successful relationship between the White House and Congress? Well, I think it is a really interesting time uh, in politics in Washington, and there is no doubt that there is a lot of potential uh, that Speaker Ryan brings with him to the job. He's acknowledged that the House of Representatives that Republicans have been in charge of for the last five years now is broken. So there's a, you know, a, a ray of hope here. Uh, I think the question is, what lesson does he take from that brokenness? Uh, is he going to be committed to trying to just find new ways to placate the extreme right wing of the conference, which is what I would argue is the root of the problem? Or is he going to try to put forward a proactive agenda and lay out a direction for policy for the United States Congress. The, the problem really has been that the Republican conference has been so dysfunctional that they haven't actually articulated and pursued an affirmative vision for what they think the country should be about. Uh, so if, if Paul Ryan is serious about pushing aside those in his party who are committed to sabotage and just bringing down the process and actually trying to pursue an affirmative vision for, for trying to address some of the challenges the country is facing, he will find a very willing interlocutor at the, at the White House. It doesn't mean we're going to agree on everything. It, it, in fact, it, it, it doesn't mean we're going to agree on most things. But the question is, you know, where are the, the little opportunities that we can find to see some common ground? Uh, I think that's what makes uh, those of us at the White House uh, hopeful. So in the vein of sabotaging the process, I mean, let's sort of move that to the Republican presidential race. I mean, what you have here is a model, you know, in Congress and the Senate to some degree with the, la- the latest sort of wave of people coming in and seeming to care really not at all about the respect of their colleagues. Um, There's this new gold standard, get as much attention as you can and run for president as quickly as you can. I think think we are seeing this dynamic in the presidential campaign. I mean, if you look at people like um, Ted Cruz and even to a lesser extent Rand Paul, their chief credential for the office has been them pointing back to their efforts to try to prevent the process from working. Right? Ted Cruz was essentially running on the fact that he shut down the government two years ago, uh, to say nothing of the fact that he was unsuccessful in a- achieving his ultimate goal, which is defunding Obamacare, to say nothing of the fact that his efforts to shut down the government and save the government money actually ended up costing the, the government money. It cost more money to shut down the government and restart it again than we saved by the government being closed for 17 days. So 
there's no affirmative governing agenda that's being put forward by the other side. That's what's made it hard. You know, we, we, even some people who are so frustrated, even some Democrats who are frustrated about the dysfunction in Washington, D.C., have suggested, well, why doesn't, the, you know, why doesn't the president work harder to just reach out to Republicans and try to find common ground? How can you find common ground with somebody who's not actually putting forward a, a proactive, affirmative agenda for what they would like to see? And it does seem that, that Ryan does come somewhat counter to that trend, right? He's known as being first and foremost a policy guy, a guy with you know, a huge stack of policy papers ready to enact whether he can get the rest of his colleagues to go along with him is a different question. But to go back to the point that you were making earlier, does that give you hope that it might be actually at some point some sort of battle of policy as opposed to something that's just about this kind of anarchic politics that has sort of taken hold? Yeah, there is some optimism about that because, as, as you point out, Paul Ryan does have a reputation. Speaker Ryan does have somebody as a, as a, as a reputation for lots of ideas that he brings to the table. But, you know, when he says things like, well, we're not going to work with the president on, on immigration because he can't be trusted anymore, the fact is Paul Ryan, you know, two or three years ago, was actually somebody on the Republican side of the aisle who was helpful in brokering a bipartisan compromise that passed through the United States Senate with strong bipartisan support and would have passed through the House of Representatives with bipartisan support if Paul Ryan and other leaders in Congress had allowed it to come up for a vote. So it's preposterous for Paul Ryan to suggest that somehow the president can't be trusted when Paul Ryan was actively sabotaging the compromise that he helped broker. That's the question that he's going to have to face in terms of being Speaker of the House. I think that he was trashing the president on immigration reform just to appeal to that extreme right wing of his own conference. And so the question in his mind is, how much time is he going to spend trying to placate them by saying preposterous things about the president? And how much time is he going to try to actually advance his own agenda and try to find common ground uh, with other Republicans in his conference, but also with the Democrat who's sitting in the White House and will sign off on whatever legislation Congress passes. So, so Josh, I, I haven't read the transcripts of all of your briefings in the last 10 days, although I, I will. I promise You're really I missing will, out. I promise <laughs> I will tonight, and I'll, I'll read it aloud with my family uh, right before Bible reading uh, for relaxation uh, before bed. Maybe around uh, the Thanksgiving table or something? P- perhaps. We'll save it for that. What's been, if, if anything, the nature of the outreach uh, between the White House and Speaker Ryan or from Speaker Ryan to the White House or what have you? Has there been any kind of, um, you know, serious kind of exchange of ideas of what this relationship might look like? Well, the president did have a chance to call him the day before he was formally elected speaker, but when it was clear that he was going to be elected speaker. Right. Uh, That was not a, it was not a serious policy discussion that they had there, but it was an opportunity for the president to congratulate Speaker Ryan and to wish him well and to say that he looks forward to trying to build a a constructive working relationship with him. And there's certainly a, a willing, you know, not, not just a willingness, but an eagerness on our side mm-hmm. um, to, uh, to try to see what this opportunity might bring. Okay. Uh, well, you know, he's a, he's a huge Packers fan, uh, the, the, I mean, switching to football. <laughs> I mean, the president's a big Bears fan. I mean, obviously it's yeah. a rivalry, but I mean, you know, they have a game upcoming. I mean, that could be a good opportunity. I don't want to suggest anything, but, you know, perhaps <laughs> I should break bread over a football game. Yeah, maybe so. It might it might not help their relationship get off to the the right start though if they're cheering for different teams. I mean, he doesn't golf, so I mean they won't have to do that. Over <laughs> yeah. they won't do that, you know, Boehner Obama golf thing. Josh, well, look, we can't thank you enough for joining us on Podcast for America, uh, which might be the only um, you know major media institution that President Obama has not joined um, in the last six months. So uh, we at least have the proxy. We can try to work him into our schedule. I think we can. (laughs) Absolutely. Well, I'll I'll certainly pass along the invitation. Thanks, Josh. Thank you for having me on, guys. It was really fun. Thanks, Josh. All right. This brings us to the segment we like to call. Actually, we don't, I don't know if we like to call it or not, but we do call it 
if I were in charge. That means, as we all know, that me and Annie will actually take a turn to sort of make the world a better place, which I think is why we entered journalism to begin with. It's why we are such good citizens of the planet to begin with. Do you need me to stall any longer so that you can think of something you would do if you were in charge, or do you have something well, you'd like to I was thinking about my ideal debate, and mm -hmm. what if you had the candidates set their own terms, like have a little Congress to mm -hmm. a, like enact the rules of their own debate and decide who gets to stay and who gets to go? So sort of a Lord of the Flies yeah, dash. Yeah, exactly. Kind of Slash Model UN type situation. It's interesting. If Model I were in charge, I'm doing it. Were you in Model UN? That's sort of the kind of thing that I like, wasn't. I wasn't. But it was it was in my school. It was for teenagers who were both dorks and sexually active. I feel like sexually active. They were dorks? constantly on like bus trips. It was a disaster. Uh, well, wait a minute. First of all, <laughs> so are you saying you were not a sexually active dork? I'm just saying that I wasn't in Model UN. Okay, I will not cross <laughs> any other boundaries. Were you or, in uh, Model UN? No. <laughs> Although the best Parks and Rec episode, did you see the Parks and Rec episode? It's pretty good. Involving Leslie Nope yeah. on Model UN. So if I were in charge, this is actually a seasonal, if I were in charge, if it's a, it's a seasonal mandate, I think in the same way that Thanksgiving is the last Thursday of every November, Halloween should always be the last Saturday of October. Because, I mean, I think we all can agree that like Halloween is absolutely the best on Saturday night, correct? It's not a school night. You can stay out late. It's, it's like the logical party night. All kinds of debauchery can happen for the sexually active dorks. The sexually active dorks who dress up for Halloween could have a field day without worrying about <laughs> their job at the video store the next day. I guess I'm dating myself. They don't work at video stores anymore. There's no more video, video stores. stores. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, yeah. No, I think Halloween. They work at be, like Pinkberry. They work. Oh God. I don't. Do you think they do? I, I don't think, think so. they do work at Jamba Juice. One of my favorite Larry King Twitter feed things is he just said simply not long ago, "I can't get into Pinkberry." <laughs> That's pretty good. You should look it all up. So that's all from Podcast for America. Speaking for myself, I wouldn't deign to speak for Annie, but this has been one of the great joys, not just of my Podcast for America career, but of my entire life, certainly of the year. Thank you very much to our producer, Jocelyn Frank. Thanks to AC Valdez and Andy Bowers at Panoply. Please, I say please, let us know what you think of the show. You'll find us on Twitter, at pod for america Our email address is podcast for america at gmail.com and please underline please tell your friends about us too you can subscribe to us in itunes stitcher or your favorite podcast app and don't forget to leave us a rating or comment wherever you subscribe it helps other people discover our show for annie lowry i'm mark Leibovich in washington dc we will talk to you next time and thank you so much for listening